Hello, good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. And if you go on Amazon and search for the full context, you can see my first and second books, the full context of Jacqueline Hyde and the full context of A Christmas Carol. Well, that is me introduced. I shall start off with a slight apology. This episode episode is coming after a two-week break. I have just been away for a month travelling around Australia. And would you believe it, I found the statue of Charles Dickens and I went to a pub called The Shakespeare and I cannot get away from my podcast and my context. Oh my god. You might also hear I have a slight cold. I still decided to record today, so sorry if I'm a little bit more nasal than usual, but such is life. Well, we are moving on to the third Victorian text next which I wanted to talk to you about. The next text we're going to do is The Sign of Four by Arthur Conan Doyle. A Shakespeare, Shakespeare, oh my god, a Victorian classic. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about my bias because this episode is going to focus on Arthur Conan Doyle or AC as he is known. Um, I I grew to quite like Robert Louis Stevenson while studying him. I even grudgingly came to quite like Charles Dickens. I do not like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I went to university with uh, people like him based on the biography that a lot of my sources have come from which is The Adventures of Arthur Conan Doyle by Russell Miller. I don't like him. I'm gonna try my best but I'll, I'll do what I can. So let's talk about AC. In an interview in 1892 called A Day with Dr. Conan Doyle, he was described by the writer of this interview as, I found him totally different from the man I expected to see, he wrote. There is nothing lynx-sized, lynx-eyed, or lynx effect, man. Nothing detective about him, not even the regulation walk of our modern solver of mysteries. He is just a happy genial homely man tall broad-shouldered with a hand that grips you heartily and in its sincerity of welcome hurts he is brown and bronzed for he enters liberally into all outdoor sports football tennis bowls and cricket but in exercise he leans most towards tricycling I, I think they mean cycling he is never happier than when on his tandem with his wife and starting on a 30 mile spin never merrier than when he perches his little three-year-old Mary on the wheels and runs her round the green lawn of his garden. Okay, okay, he he sounds alright then. Fair enough. But he, that's a little bit ahead of ourselves. So Conan Doyle is age 30 when he writes our book The Sign of Four. He has already written one Sherlock Holmes book before now, which is A Study in Scarlet, Sherlock Holmes's first outing. He is allegedly a fine figure of a man. He reached his bulk lightly and walked with a purposeful gait as if he always knew exactly where he was going. His wavy hair slicked down with oil was parted on the left and he now sported 
exuded a luxuriant walrus-like moustache, waxed into points which covered his entire top lip. His Edinburgh accent was pronounced, but he spoke slowly so that he was easily understood and looked whomever he was addressing directly in the eyes. We have a newly married, kind of independent GP who had dreamed of becoming a writer and was finally making it, so he's getting where he wants to be in his life when he writes this. His family bearer mentioned his dad, Charles, was an artist and did a lot of political chores. He had some problems. He had a lot of problems, did Charles. He was an alcoholic. This led to brain damage and eventually led to him developing epilepsy. I'm not sure if that's how it works nowadays, but we're thinking 19th century alcoholic, so he was probably drinking like the grimmest booze there was. He spent much of his adult life confined to a residential mental institution or asylum. Uh, did have some contact with Ace but was mostly out the picture. His mum, Mary, was a bit of a storyteller, one of these people who has an anecdote for every occasion, much like a former head of year I worked with. And whenever I had to teach the word anecdote, I was like, oh yeah, you know those assemblies with Mr. So-and-so? And every student is like, yes. I'm like, that's an anecdote. She was a very dominating person and she believed that AC was born with a special purpose in life. She had a sense of intense pride in her family's past. So AC goes off to school. He is Catholic and he is sent off to, I believe, a Jesuit boarding school. Some kind of very serious uh, institution. And like, this is like some soap opera nonsense right now. He comes back from the holidays and his mum has let out the spare room to a guy called Brian Waller. AC does not like this because he is acting like he's the family's dad when he's quote-unquote just a lodger. But he is probably also the father of AC's youngest sister. And there is quite, like, an age gap going on. Eventually, this guy Waller marries and um, and he gives AC's mother Mary a cottage on the grounds of his house he's bought and they lived together and he would have all his meals with her but it was never official um his wife didn't like it I can see why to be honest I mean if my boyfriend was like this is my older woman I used to live with don't worry we're just friends but I possibly fathered one of her children and now she lives with us oh my God, uh, I sympathise with the wife. They never, ever got on, ever. And I mean, okay, okay, I can kind of see that. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes next time. But we want to talk about his mentor. This guy called Joseph Bell. He was a tall, angular figure with sharp features, a beak-like nose and piercing grey eyes. Arthur said he had a face like a red Indian. Oh God, oh God. Um, I, I digress for a moment. This book is incredibly racially insensitive. I have had to read some disgusting, disgusting things over the course of my research. And believe me, dear listener, looks like a red Indian is 
one of the least disgusting things I will have to say over this part of the series. I'm laughing because if I don't laugh, I will have to cry. So when AC is at medical school, Joseph Bell is his lecturer. He was 39, but was a little bit obsessed with like logic and deduction. He was also quite showy. He was that lecturer who, you know, their lectures are memorable. Um, I'm quoting from Russell Miller again here. One of Bell's favourite tricks was to invite new students to taste an amber liquid in a glass vial. He, it was, he explained, an extremely potent drug with a vile and bitter taste, which they needed to be able to recognise. Since he would not ask students to do anything he would not be willing to do himself, he said he'd be the first. He removed the stopper, immersed a finger in the liquid, then put his hand to his mouth, shuddering as he sucked his finger. The students dutifully followed suit as the vial was passed round, all of them registering disgust. At the end, Bell inev- invariably expressed his disappointment in their poor powers of observation. It was his index finger. finger. He reminded his groaning class that he had dipped in the noxious brew, but it was his middle finger put into his mouth. Oh my days. This guy was a model of logical thinking and deduction. A little bit more on him next episode. But we can argue that he is very strongly where Sherlock Holmes came from. We need to talk a little bit about his wife as well. So he, AC had just got married the year before he started writing Sherlock Holmes. His wife Louisa was always known as Tui. They had a really, really short engagement. He met her during the course of his work. And I've got ellipsis in my show notes here. Dot, dot, dot. While her dad was dying dot 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 because you see his her dad was a patient of his when he was doing palliative care him and the daughter were getting on very nicely oh god i mean some people are funny like how i met my partner stories but i met them while their father was in a hospice oh god no (laughs) he had started his own medical practice at this point in the second year when study in scarlet was published it was actually starting to turn a profit which is very good he had written previously before getting into Sherlock Holmes but it was mostly like just for pocket money I do want to point out though my very first royalty check has arrived for my books Uh, it's a sum of um 20 quid so um hashtag buy my books buy my books let's see if I can be AC he was a very very hard worker according to to his friend Jerome K. Jerome. JKJ said he would sit at a small desk in a corner of his own drawing room, writing a story, while a dozen people round him were talking and laughing. He preferred it to being in his study. Sometimes, without looking up from his work, he would make a remark, showing he must have been listening to our conversation, but his pen never ceased moving. He was a guy of many different hobbies, as I've mentioned already, incredibly sporty. He loved travel. He was one of these people who would like get a job as an excuse to go on an extended holiday. So he went to West Africa and he went to the Arctic Circle joining ships and being their ship's doctor. He was raised Jesuit, as I've mentioned. He was a confirmed Catholic. He lost his faith as he became older though. 
but he was always had this like sense of done something wider going on in the world oh god we've reached the bit on my show notes where i've wrote beliefs as i've mentioned the guy is uh by our standards today not not the most pleasant chap and i apologize in advance for some of the things i will be saying and quoting he had the very very strict gentlemanly moral code i mentioned this back in jekyll and hyde some very smart people think that because faith was on the decline people wanted a different kind of moral code to keep them on the straight and narrow and for a lot of dudes it was this idea of being a gentleman in 1899 he gave himself a questionnaire because he was bored and not working i mean i've got a day off today and i've been watching american horror story and eating crisps is that better I don't know. But according to his questionnaire, he said unaffectedness was his favourite virtue. Manliness as his favourite virtue in another man. Work as his favourite occupation. Time well filled as his ideal of happiness. Men who do their duty as favourite heroes in real life. And affectation and conceit as his pet aversions. Alright, alright, fair enough. Fair enough. He was incredibly patriotic. He was what we call a jingoist. He genuinely believed that England was the greatest place in the whole wide world. He volunteered to serve as a doctor during the Boer War between the UK and what's now South Africa. And he loved it. <laughs> he he really, really really loved it. It's known as the conflict where concentration camps were perhaps first used and Doyle insisted that they weren't. No, none here and everything was fine. Towards the end of his life he actually had to apologise to the nation of South Africa for some things he said in print. He was very much against Irish independence. He did not like that, which, considering as he had Irish heritage, okay, okay. He was for the Contagious Diseases Act. So this act in 1883 said that the police could arrest any woman suspected of having an STD and subject her to a non-consenting medical examination. It would probably be used for women who were sex workers or suspected of being sex workers. Doyle was living in Portsmouth at at that point so there were lots of sailors, lots of people coming to and fro and the sort of people this act was trying to protect like the armed forces as opposed to what Conan Doyle called harlots oh god meant that he was in favor of medical examinations without consent in a letter to a newspaper called the medical times he railed mighty against quote-unquote champions of the modesty of harlots. He said, I say that if an unfortunate soldier coming home to his native land after an absence of years and exposed to such temptations should yield to them and entail disease upon himself and his offspring, the chief fault should not lie at his door. It surely emanates logically from those hysterical legislators who set loose these bearers of contagion and their like upon society. For fear delicacy should be offended when no touch 
such of delicacy exists. Dreadful evils are the result, men to suffer, children to die, and pure women to inherit unspeakable evils. Loose statements and vague doctrines of morality may impose upon hasty thinkers, but surely, when the thing is reduced to its simplest terms, it becomes a matter of public calamity that these acts should be suspended for a single day. Look, okay, he is coming off as a massive misogynist, but in all, in true contradictory A.C. Doyle style, he became a champion of the cause of divorce law. The idea that a woman didn't have to wait to be mistreated to file for divorce to end her marriage. He's a complex dude. His relationship to Sherlock Holmes was ambivalent. Again, show notes, I just wrote DGAF, followed by two exclamation points. He did not really like the character he created. Um, a lot of the time, people want criticise English teachers, and they say, oh, but you know, you're saying that um, when the writer said blue, it means he was sad, but don't you think he just meant the word blue? Ha ha ha, English teachers are stupid. Well, yeah and no. The Sherlock Holmes books do have a lot of mistakes in them. In terms of, like, continuity, and he hasn't checked up whether things are actually real. Like, he says in Speckled Band, there is a deadly adder found in India, but everything he says about the snake is completely fictional because he didn't actually check up on any of his facts. In one book, Dr. Watson has a dog, but the dog then disappears and is never mentioned at any other point. He wrote them carelessly. They're riddled with errors and inconsistencies. So when, back to that example of blue, well, when maybe when he says blue, it's because he was tired and didn't care and just wrote a random word. It's difficult to analyse, isn't it? Credibility was tested. Readers were invited to believe that Holmes was able to disguise himself in a matter of minutes, so convincingly that even Watson couldn't recognise him. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're just invited to suspend your belief. He's completely untroubled by these trifles. In short stories, he declared, it has always seemed to me that so long as you produce your dramatic effect, accuracy of detail matters little. When an editor wrote to tell him there was no railway line at a particular place, he replied, I made one. He didn't see Holmes as an immortal iconic character because he earned large sums of money. He didn't care. He was literally just in it for the money. When an actor playing Holmes asked him for hints, he just said he didn't care. Do what you want, mate. He actually resented Sherlock Holmes because he felt that Holmes was holding him back from writing more serious things. Later in life, as my show notes are depressing me, he did some very good things later in life. He advocated for the use of survival equipment for sailors. So before AT started making a fuss, they didn't have life jacket in the Navy. He made sufficient fuss that that was a thing and that was awesome that saved a lot of lives he represented the horrors of the belgian congo under belgian rule in the media he's one of a group of writers who brought the horrors of what was happening to life people just being arbitrarily killed if you're interested in that um listen to the podcast called behind the bastards the episodes on king leopold they're absolutely fantastic he represented a falsely accused man 
in terms of his media presence. So this guy was second generation Indian. He was accused of some horrible murders. Doyle investigated it and proved basically that everyone was racist. He predicted that submarine warfare would be a thing and helped the British armed forces prepare for it. He suggested the idea of a channel tunnel. Would you believe it? He was like, channel tunnel, get on this. And during the First World War, he opened up his home to invalid soldiers who had been sent home. But he was a little bit off the rails. He also was against women's right to vote. He got booed at public events. He got hate mail from suffragettes. He actually had to have armed guard at his gates. It was his view that women could not expect the right to vote until they paid their own taxes. And furthermore, he doubted that women in general, outside the suffragette movement, were interested in politics. His own beloved wife certainly had no desire to vote and his equally beloved mother had proven, as far as he was concerned, it was quite possible for a woman to hold her own in a man's world. Would either benefit from female suffrage? No! He considered the suffragette movement would more likely result in social chaos than equality for women. Right. Right. Cool, cool, cool. As I mentioned, the concentration camps thing, he thought they were kind of a good idea. We're not talking concentration camps in the sense of Auschwitz. We're talking um, camps that are set up to put enemy civilians in and they are just disgusting and a lot of people died he however went on the record saying that they were refugee camps and it was better to give civilians shelter than abandon them to die of starvation and disease he pointed out the mortality rate was high but it was because of disease rather than bad treatment he argued that the natural instinct of boer mothers b-o-e-r mothers to cling on to their children and prevent them from being moved into quarantine was more responsible for the excessive mortality among minors than the overcrowded conditions oh god sigh 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 and just as we think he cannot get much worse he believed that homosexuality was a mental illness he one of his friends was accused of being a traitor and conan doyle said that's okay he's mentally ill because he's gay so he isn't responsible for what he's saying or doing Right. He went to the front in World War One, and all of his writing was about how great the leaders are and how trench conditions are wonderful and how anything else you might hear is a lie. I don't think he was actually deliberately lying. I think he just had these, like, you know, his rose-tinted glasses on because he was a patriotic dude. He, sadly, both his son and his brother were killed during the First World War. After this point, he got really obsessed with spiritualism and the idea of a life after death. It became this thing that kind of got him laughed out of 
um, respectable literary society. Because he'd come around and be like, I've got this seance. He had a spirit guide called Phineas who would tell him about the future and what heaven was like. Uh, he set up a spiritualist um, bookstore and publishing house and became kind of obsessed with life after death however during a seance allegedly he did speak to Charles Dickens as a ghost he was taken in by those hoax fairy photos you know the famous ones where there's the girls posing with the fairies in black and white and uh, everyone thought they were real but it was actually the kids had done a very very good paper cut out he was taken in by them and was writing to papers like fairies are real people fairies are real generally he was just kind of tolerated like that sort of mad uncle at christmas you know like he tried to write more home stories but after he left the magazine called the strand he tried to write more but they weren't very good however I just want to finish my very brief, very scornful biography of AC by saying he gatecrashed his own funeral. In true spiritualist style, um, after his body was laid to rest, at the Royal Albert Hall there was a memorial spiritualist service and they had like this empty chair and according to the spiritualists and psychics present, he showed up and attended his own funeral. Ah, oh, that's pretty good though. Gotta say, I mean, how many people allegedly get to attend their own funeral? Alright, alright, right, I'll give him, give him some props for that. Give him some props. Um, his last words to his wife were, You were wonderful. Which is brilliant. Speaking briefly of his romantic life, I can't believe I forgot to tell you about this. His wife, Tui, was chronically ill with a condition that eventually killed her. While she was getting more and more infirm, he was uh, dating someone else, but apparently, oh, it's totally platonic. And then she moved in with them. Uh, and uh, the second wife was just kind of as I'm just a family friend hanging around then they got married like three months after like it all came to light because he kept everyone very secret when his brother-in-law saw him out on a date with the other woman at Lord's Cricket Ground and there was a bit of a scene oh my days that is the most Victorian thing I have ever heard so there you go ladies and gents that is your whistle stop tour through our author ac doyle writer of the sign of four i have been your host Catherine. hopefully my cold would have cleared up by the next episode it might not have wish me luck i bought this weird cold medication in hong kong airport called cold go exclamation point
mind. So I'm going to take some more cold go and hopefully my, my audio quality will be a bit better next week. I will return to speak to you about Mr. Sherlock Holmes, SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. Buy my books, buy my books, buy my books. They're all on Amazon. And obviously, if we eliminate the impossible, whatever remains is true. And what is impossible is that you will miss out on our next episode focusing on Sherlock Holmes. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>